0: this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to
0: never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top.
1: I went from a sale of you
0: know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey guys, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by bizbuysell.com, the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. So here's a challenge. I want you to type into Google business for sale, what comes up? My guess is one of the first top three natural search listings that pop up is going to be BizBuySell.com. They are by long shot the number one marketplace to buy or sell a small business. They've got something like 47,000 businesses listed for sale. They've also got one of the largest directories of business brokers online. So if you're looking to have some help and support taking your business to market and you want to find a business broker, it's a place, great place to go. They've also put together recently a guide to selling a small business. You know, if you think about what we're all about here at Built to Sell Radio, it's about helping you take your business to market, helping point out some of the big pitfalls, some of the big obstacles to taking your business to market. And this guidebook can be a really good little tips and tricks on what to think about before you go to sell. You can download it book by going to bizbysell.com slash built. That's com forward slash built. All right, next up, we've got Drew Goodmanson, who started Monk Development and ultimately sold it to ministry brands. And then he rolled up a number of different other companies and sold the Collective Group, or was part of the group that sold the Collective Group for a billion five. So an interesting story uh, to say the least. Drew has worked both the buy side and the sell side. What I mean by that, he has sold his company to this PE, private equity roll-up. He has also worked for the private equity company acquiring businesses. So uh, he brings to this interview a really unique uh, point of view from both sides of the equation. You're going to hear lots of, uh, of interesting insight. I want you to pay special attention to the section where he talks about post-acquisition economics and the difference between a financial and a strategic buyer. Such an important lesson. Um, that he learned. I also love his comment here uh, about you name the price, I'll name the terms. One of the classic negotiating uh, sort of tips and tricks. He also talks about Um, fear versus freedom and and some of the kind of personal journey he went through to get comfortable with the idea of selling his company. It took six months and and, and the the help of a therapist to get his head around the idea. And so lots of really interesting insight both from the emotional as well as the financial perspective. I want to uh, make a big special shout out and thank you to Mark Wilson, uh, MortgageBankingCPA.com who nominated Drew. Uh, We get a lot of our audience members uh, or excuse me, people that I interview from people who listen to the show. So uh, by all means, if you wanna nominate someone like Drew who you know who's done an interesting exit, uh, to slash nominate. And I just wanna say again, thank you for Mark Wilson uh, for making that nomination of Drew. Without further ado, here is Drew Goodmanson. Drew Goodmanson, welcome to Built to Cell Radio. Thanks for having me, John. All the way from the sunny San Diego. It has to be my favorite city in the United States by a long mile.
1: Oh, I would agree. Be- best place on earth, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, like 300 plus days of sunshine or something like that.
1: Yeah, if you, if you like seasons, though, this may not be your place. We only have one.
0: <laughs> right, right. Sunny and warm. Yeah, exactly. Um, tell me about this company, Monk Development, that you'd sold. What, what did you guys do?
1: Yeah, so, so Monk Development began as kind of a web development shop, and we went through a process of, from custom development to building a product, and that product served uh, the faith-based market. We you know, really went after churches, and so we built a, a system that managed kind of their online presence, their events, small groups, you know, all of their media, sermon recordings, um, you know, even getting into donation processing, in all of those you know, kind of day-to-day pieces uh, in the life of the church.
0: It's so funny. When I think of a church, I think of like a little little old place, 300 years old at the top of a hill. But of course, the world of churches has changed, right? Now they're, in many cases, big mega churches. They're almost b- businesses. They certainly have a commercial element to them. So they need to, I guess, market themselves. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, typically they have a director of communications when they're a certain size, which which would be equivalent to maybe like a marketing director, um, in terms of communication, but it's, you know, it's very, uh, you know, in terms of America, you have some very large churches in the Bible belt and other areas. Um, and so they, they are, they are, you know, large, you know, thousands and thousands of people. So they definitely run, you know, have to run a little bit like a business and and need these types of tools to be more effective and communicate to the the thousands of people that are, that are part of the community.
0: Was it tough to sell to them? Like, I got to imagine they would have been very frugal, like every dollar they spend with your software is a dollar. They're not, you know, helping a charity or doing good work in the community. You know what I mean? Like they would imagine they would pull on those. Come on, Drew, you can't, you know, you know, uh, charge us too much for the software. We won't be able to do our good work. Did you get that sort of objection?
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was not a market you'd want to sit down and say this is the market we want to go to to make the most money. So a lot of it was just birthed out of a passion to you know to want to help churches and and then uh, yeah the sales process was 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 challenging because yeah you'd have committees and you know all sorts of uh, you know steps that could really confuse the sales process and make it challenging.
0: I'd imagine. So tell me about the evolution of the business. So you went from being a service business to a product business. And a lot of people that I think listen to the show have are in the throes of doing exactly that, right? They've got a service, but they know that the product business is going to be better valued, more sellable, and so they're trying to make that transition. I mean, what what was the secret for you to get across from being a, you know, custom web development shop to a a, a pure play product business?
1: Yeah, I think it began with focus around solving a specific problem um, over and over again that was repeatable. So you know when we started saying no to certain things and really focusing on one market and one set of problems, you can you could build a solution that you can sell multiple times. And so you know that that was one of the big steps, was just saying, "Hey, let's solve a problem that we can identify uh, that that is big enough that it's worthwhile." Um, and then you you know you start building the product and and you release it to the wild and 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 start you know continue to add and and uh, and focus down on that uh, that piece. How did but we, you, we, funded it, we funded it, you know, through custom development, right? So, you know, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, bootstrapping and, and, and funding it through the custom development allowed us to reinvest that back into the product development.
0: Got it. And how did you avoid the temptation to slip back? Because I'm sure when you'd made the switch over to the product, you still had legacy clients who said, come on, Drew, we need you to build this website for us. And they're, they're not a church. They're, they're nowhere near the kind of target market. How did you avoid that temptation?
1: You know, I think as we realized how costly it was to take that revenue and and how much of a distraction, you know, we had an assembly line we were building, and anything that was outside of the norm really was so painful. And and, and I felt like we didn't do the job that 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 client really needed. So at some point, knowing that it was not in the best interests of you know the the non church client to serve them, you know, it kind of freed us from feeling like we needed to to, to go after that business. <laughs>
0: How big did you get it before you sold? So, you know, in terms
1: of uh, revenue, you know, we were, you know, three, a little over 3 million, maybe three and a half. And, uh, you know, we probably were 20 something employees uh, that were part of the
0: team. And what made you want to sell? So, you know, that, that, that
1: was an interesting thing. We, we began a process uh, really probably in 2013, 14, where we were transitioning and developing our leaders to to really run the business without us. And you know I think that really uh, mission accomplished by the end of two thousand and fourteen, where we did the strategic planning session and and you know I, the le uh, kind of some of the owners and myself were not involved at all other than we shared kind of the vision of where we wanted to go, and were' really you know clear on on the the mission of why. Um, but, uh, you know, they came back with the whole plan of what we were going to accomplish. And so for me, that really, you know, opened up this, you know, Hey, what's next? Uh, you know, I'm I'm getting, I'm in a place now where I'm coaching and spending 90% of my time working on the business, not in the business. So that freed me up. Um, so that, that was the first thing. And And then the second thing was was just you know strictly I, I, a couple companies um, reached out to us and started talking to us uh, around this idea of selling and said hey we're interested in you guys um, and you know one had been calling us for a year and the other you know uh, you know asked me to fly up in January of 2015 and so you know it just it, that seed got planted which you know I think you start getting you know pregnant with the idea of a deal and and that momentum is hard to stop.
0: I've never heard that term, pregnant with a deal, but I love it. It's great. I want to get into the deal itself. But before we go there, you had kicked off this initiative, I guess, in 2013 to get your managers to, to, to kind of free you up and get, get you personally out of the business. Can you give us, I mean, I think most people have read Gerber's book and they know the idea of working on, not in, uh, but maybe get stuck a little bit on the implementation Can you give me like a specific example, a very tactical thing that you did to get your business to be less dependent on you personally?
1: Yeah, and and I think there's there's two sides to to this piece. There's the execution piece, and you know, like like most people, I've read the E Myth, and 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 I felt like you know, in terms of training and systems, and you know, a monkey should be able to do something. I think is one of the comments, you know. But but the piece that that I think a lot of people struggle with is how do you translate kind of the heart, the the passion, you know, and the the values of the entrepreneur who founded the company into into something that that is you know that you can manage people by. And so for for me, um, one of the biggest things was not not coming up with just values, but defining values so clearly that you know often they were several pages where we asked questions you know like what does this value mean? How should we think, act, you know, and do, you know, what should we do because of this? Like, what policies do we have in place, like, to support this value? And we really got uh, very explicit down to the point where a customer service rep, if they came to us and, and a customer was asking for something, you know, we could tell them, hey, based on our values, you know, you, what do you think you should we should do? Like, and so we just started training people anytime they came to us, like, hey, based on our values, what should we do? And those uh, those things really became... Uh, you know, transformational um, for our people, and allowed us to to move out of this. You know, hey, we need to be involved in all the decision making to uh, to a place where they could you know make decisions freely in line with what we would want them to.
0: How do you go from you know values on a piece of paper, you know values on a on a wall and a poster to actually meaning something? to people? Like, what is that transit? Because I think a lot of people get stuck there with, they, they define the values, but they never really get traction or mean anything to anybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, my journey, one was um, just the, the journey to leadership. I had to let go of my desire and identity around doing specific roles and and really come to a place where I was willing to let others, you know, try and even fail. So I think that was the first step. The second step was, um, um, you know, giving them and coaching them to apply the values to the different projects they were working on and asking them, uh, really from a place of challenging or coaching. I think those were the two kind of the right and left hand uh, uh you know, of applying the values is saying, Hey, I'm going to coach you on, on, on what this value means, but I'm also going to challenge you if you're coming back with a decision that I don't think is in line with that. And so, um, an example, one of our values was results oriented. And, and so we, you know, we talked about creating marketing content that if we didn't show results that, you know, that for the client, we, if we didn't have specific, you know, tangible. This is what happened. It isn't, it isn't something we want to publish. We want to be very clear and results oriented because anyone can go get a pretty website, but at the end of the day, we wanted to have ways to measure, you know, whether or not this actually moved the needle. And so we did, you know, a hundred church, we we took a hundred churches and did an analytic study and help present a report on, you know, the state of the church online in like 2008 or nine and, and, you know, early on and, and, and help people start to think about these things to get better results. So, I mean, this became just a, something we, you know, talked about in team meetings on a weekly basis, you know, each, you know, each kind of quarterly meeting, we, we shared stories and asked all the leadership to bring examples of that value lived out. We rewarded that. I mean, just, it really became. Systemic and systematic, right? so systemically we we constantly were trying to embed it and, and reinforce it, but systematically, we had very defined moments and meetings and agenda items that made the values become front and center and real, so that they became a guiding uh, piece, not just uh, you know a picture of an eagle flying over a mountain right. with, a pic- with a word on it right
0: how do you how do you deal with situations where you know, values compete with financial results. So yes. you've, you've got a situation where a financial result is achievable, but not at, at you know, while basically adhering to a value set. Um, like, because at the end of the day, following being a, being a missionary leader and being a visionary and focusing on your values, I think that all sounds great in theory. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people relate to that. But then mm-hmm. how do you let go of the idea that one quarter you just miss your numbers because everybody's too worried about values and not focused on, you know, hitting the quarterly number.
1: Yeah, so to me, one of the values it has to be it's in this it's in the best interests of our clients for us to be profitable, and so we have you know we have people where results oriented isn't just client facing it's also our own results. So we can't have unprofitable projects. We can't you know manage things from uh, a perspective of you know let's let's just lose money on this like we, we need to make money or else we're we're in total contradiction to our value set. And, and, and that, that became, uh, you know, that's a very clear part of it. And, and I think your people have to buy into that and own that uh, kind of that P&L level responsibility.
0: Got it. So let's get into the deal itself. So um, you're three, just crested $3 million in revenue, 20 employees, and you're, a couple of folks are starting to sniff around. One had been courting you for about a year. Was that a strategic, like uh, what, what was the type of company that, that had been sort of uh, courting you for some time?
1: So it, that was um, a group that became private equity backed, mm-hmm. uh, and and were you know consolidating our, our our market, which was highly fragmented.
0: Got it. And then there were other people. Were, were there other private equity, or were they were they strategic? You no,
1: know, the other one was a strategic um, that that was a large company, you know, in our space, uh, you know, in a different area. That really wanted uh, you know what we offered to be part of their solution set and, and and saw the value of that.
0: Got it. And so, how did you go from there? Did you hire an advisor to sort of take you to market, or did you did you negotiate yourself with these these two parties?
1: So you know, it, it's an interesting space that you know being in the faith based space. And so we did meet with you know investment bankers and others to kind of think about that. But it just it's such a bizarre, you know, industry. And maybe everybody thinks that, but, but I mean, you know, people that sell to churches, I mean, it just, it's kind of an odd situation. Uh, So what, what I did is I I hired a coach who was an investment banker and just paid him kind of a monthly retainer and to work with me. And, you know, he, he was on some phone calls, but really coached me in that process of uh, negotiating these deals.
0: Wow. So you had a kind of a, a Bosley in the background coaching you, but not necessarily representing you. Right. Interesting. So tell us about the process itself. What, 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 what happened and, and how, what kind of coaching did you get?
1: Yeah. So, the, the, you know, the process was, you know, re- really in that January timeframe going up and, and getting kind of the first inquiry. And then in March, um, the, the group finally got the funding that was private equity or in February they, they finally got their funding. So in March they put an offer in front of us. Um, so I flew out and met with them and you know, it it, it the The process, the piece that was interesting for me was just the emotional journey, right? So to me, you know I think about there's like there's math and there's this emotion, this this motivation piece. And so there was one conversation around the math, and the other was uh, really around the the idea of selling and what what that meant to me personally because we we hadn't really you know it wasn't like this like, oh, we're going to sell in two thousand and fifteen. So I went through a lot of different, like, you know, fear and like, kind of like, who am I if I sell? And, and I had found such an identity in what I was doing. It, you know, it was almost like this existential crisis hit. So for, we looked in March with that offer, you know, I, I said yes and then no, like, you know, I said yes, you know, one night and then had a sleepless night that was horrible and woke up the next morning and said no. Uh, and, and, uh, and just, you know, it was very difficult and kind of wrestle with that. And it wasn't until, um, so that was March. It wasn't actually until September that I, that I finally ended up saying yes, uh, and and actually going through with the deal.
0: So many questions to go through. So (laughs) in, in March, when you had this sleepless night, just to be clear, did you say yes to the buyer and then went recanted and said no after the night, or did you just Um, say yes in your mind?
1: I said, yes, in my mind and to, you know, to, to, to the, to our, you know, the guys that were, were that own part of the company with me. And so we, you know, I said yes and, and was, uh, you know, kind of said, okay, we're going to, we're going to do this. Um, and then, yeah, it was just absolute kind of panic attack ish, you know, anxiety throughout the night of just like, you know, wrestling through that. And, and really feeling like, um, you know, there was almost like this death of this, of my vision and, and a feeling like I hadn't quite attained, you know, I just felt like we we were so close to certain things. And, And so it just was like, it felt like failure. It felt like, you know, there was all sorts of emotions that started coming in as I, as I said that. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, that, that took, That took me off, you know, the path, and kind of said, "Hey, I I don't know if I'm ready for this. I really think there's an, an opportunity, and I have more clarity now after having these conversations about what I can do to really drive value in the
0: business." So, what happened between March and September?
1: Yeah, so you know, I think just the having that surface, and and you know, as I said, kind of getting that seed planted, and. Having you know different parties involved, you know at some point, you know I just had to do a T account and say, look at what are the pros and what are the cons.
0: Sorry, what's a T account?
1: Uh, uh, um, So you know uh, just uh, the letter T, and and you write pros and you write all the pros, and then you know what? Why would I do this? And the cons are you know why wouldn't I?
0: Yeah, my mom used to tell me to do that every time I was trying to make a decision. (laughs) I'm like, mom, not this again. This was a few years ago. Okay, now I know what a T account is. So you're doing the T account on selling. What did you come up with?
1: you know, and so, you know, what I, what I realized is all of the things on con were really personal issues, you know, that, that were mine. They, they, they didn't relate to my family, to my, you know, to, to, to my, you know, the partners, to any, you know, anyone else other than, you know, what I, what I thought was the right thing for, for me. And so I had to let that go and just say, you know, why, why you know, why pursue that? This, this really is, um, you know, in, in the better interest of, of everyone involved, not just me.
0: Interesting, and so at the end of the day, um, you had to reconcile this in your own mind. I guess, wouldn't it have been better on some level to continue, I mean, if you had that, as you say, existential sort of uh, experience, you, you all sorts of concern, you clearly had, uh, were emotionally attached to the business, wouldn't have, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been better to grow it to be a hundred million dollar business and, 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 you know, die in the saddle kind of thing. If, if you felt so passionately personally, wouldn't the ideal thing be for you to continue to run it forever? Um, so, so what I, I
1: can only speak from my experience. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. you know, so, so, you know, really it it triggered a process of like going to therapy. So I think, um, you know, even processing through why my emotions were wanting me to do that. And so, you know, I think there is a part of me that was passionate about the opportunity that, that my business could go after. But quite frankly, I think there was a lot of it was, you know, even going back to my childhood, if you will, like, you know, getting to a place where I made vows of like, I'm going to do this on my own. I you, know, th- I, you know, I don't necessarily trust authority, like I'm going to pave my own way. So I've always been entrepreneurial. And a lot of that has been great. But some of that has been, you know, fear based. And, and really, those are the things that I think were, were, were holding me back more than just the opportunity, because the opportunity of selling what they were wanting me to do, you know was almost a fulfillment of some of that vision it just wouldn't mean that i owned you know that i'm that i'm running the show
0: fascinating so you actually went to to therapy and worked through this in addition to seeking the counsel of your uh, your coach
1: yeah so i had i mean you know i had a coach i had my eo so i am part of the entrepreneurs organization i had a forum who was constantly there for me and walking me through it you know and then i also was going to a therapist just to try to process this because again you know, the, the math side was one thing, but the emotional side was the piece that I, that I I don't think I was quite ready for and caught me off guard. And I really wanted to make the decision from a place of you know clarity and health, not from fear or scarcity.
0: How did the ma- so we talked about the personal journey, and I, I find that fascinating. And thank you for being so candid. The I'd love to talk about the math. So, how did the math change between or did it change between March and September? Did, did they offer more? Did they offer better terms? Like how did the term sheet change to make?
1: Yeah. So it it went up about 50%, uh, from March and, you know, and, and, and cash up front, you know, was the key. So, uh, that became a bigger number that, that became doable, um, as well. So, you know, the math helped and, and improved for sure
0: yeah and so what proportion of the total consideration again we don't need to get into the numbers of of uh, what the value was i know that we've got to be sensitive to that but what proportion of the of the total deal would have been cash up front in the final analysis ballpark
1: oh i mean 90 percent.
0: oh wow okay so you got you got you started off kind of you know below half and and you you got to 90 is that Roughly.
1: Yeah. And that and that became, you know, a, a, a critical piece, you know. So to me, you know, the famous, you, you know, you name your price, I'll name the terms, um, you know, the, this idea of loans and earnouts and all of that you know, just wasn't the world I wanted to live in because that felt like potential prison. Um, and so I, I just wanted, like, if it wasn't cash up front, it was like, you know, I'm not banking on it. So that was just icing on the cake. I, you know, I needed the money in the bank.
0: Wow. So how did you negotiate? Cause <laughs> this is music to, to the ears of, of everybody listening. because cause everybody's listening going yeah, yep. Drew's hit the nail on the head here. I want cash on the barrel head and I don't want to earn out and I don't want to vendor take back or financing or any of that stuff. But how did you make that case? Because I'm sure the buyer wanted all that stuff.
1: You know, there was, um, two things that, that, that were going on that I think impacted the deal that, that had nothing to do with me. Number one, the, the business unit that I, that, that they were kind of, they were buying us. And then ultimately I, I ran and consolidated 10 companies that were like my competitors. And so I, you know, we, our leadership team basically took over this whole business unit and I think they wanted me there and our team there because we were kind of the leaders in the market. Number two, they were recapitalizing. And so they, they from that February date, um, they, you know, they had uh, basically, um, you know, fi- they, they, they uh, five times increased the value of the rollup and within, within nine months and they were recapitalizing, so whatever they spent on me, they were gonna make far more on the deal, so they wanted to get us in, and and so we literally, I didn't know this at the time, but we closed like a week or two before um, that recapitalization, and so that, that benefited them significantly.
0: So let me just play this out. And again, I, I know we can't talk about specific numbers, but let's say uh, when they're recapitalizing the entire group, they're going to market and getting, I don't know, you guys are a SaaS business. So let's say a rolled up is four times revenue and they, and they buy you for two times revenue. It's accretive, and that's yes. what you mean by, is is that what you mean by it economically yeah, yeah. benefited
1: a- Absolutely. So, you know, because of the scale they had hit, they were going to get a better multiple because they were all SaaS, you know, and and had huge EBITDA that they had just through the synergy and the thing that they had done through through this roll up.
0: And did you know, you, you, you said you, you were not aware that you completely were not aware of that. It was just happenstance that they actually... You, yeah. So, so
1: I wasn't aware of the timing of the deal. In fact, some of my EEO buddies were like, man, well, how did you get that deal? Like, like that, <laughs> that that's such a change. So that, that's number one. And, and, and I think, you know, the challenge in the area that I was in, they were having some, you know, they, you know, loss of headcount and different things that kind of was damaging. And then the second thing is when they initially had proposed an earnout, um, you know, I had, I'd kind of come up, you know, come along and heard a concept called post acquisition economics. And so I had called the the CEO, and he he had said, "Hey, this is how you're going to hit your earnout." So I went through every product that we had and kind of talked about selling it through the different channels that he had. And I took every product he had and and asked them what you know what he estimated we would be able to do through our channels. And so I started to realize what our company was worth to them, not what it was worth to me. and and I knew that number was far higher than their initial offer.
0: Love it! Such such good advice, and 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 for everybody listening, it's really the definition of a strategic acquisition is to figure out not what your company is worth in the market, but what it is worth to a buyer. It sounds like that's exactly what you did, Drew. Fantastic! Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> what was the what was the the process? I mean, you mentioned there was a there was a second buyer at the table. Did did you did you play one off the other, or did you fairly quickly sort of fall into the arms of this one one firm?
1: you know, certainly you, you, no matter what, you want two people at the table and to create a, a, you know, a bidding type environment. So they were both aware of each other and, and, you know, I I was saying, Hey, this is what, you know, this is where we're at. You know, if you're going to continue to play ball, this is, this is where we need to get, you know, and so, you know, there was some of, some of that going on for sure.
0: What was the best piece of tactical advice that you received from your coach, the former MA banker. And when I say tactical, I'm thinking of kind of negotiation tips and tricks, uh, that kind of stuff.
1: You know, again, I think the post acquisition economics piece was, you know, something I had never really thought about because, you know, here you're building a business, spent all the time focusing on how do I build. I had never thought about the most important potential economic decision of my life, you know, things like that. And so he, you know, he really, talked about, you know, understanding that number, like you said, so that you're thinking from it more from a strategic than, than just your own financial perspective.
0: Got it. So that post acquisition economics was sort of advice that he gave you.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
0: Was there any, I mean, in in the, in the, the kind of deal back and forth Did he, did he coach you at all in, in terms of any other sort of tactical things you can do to make sure you, um, you kind of continue to hold leverage? throughout the process.
1: You know, um what what I would say is because of the the situation the buyer was in, they moved so fast and and they wanted to close that it was a very very easy process. I mean, our from the from the point of negotiating, you know, they 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 gave they got me wh- where I wanted and then they, you know, they uh, you know, got everything into me. They, you know, they had been working really hard to get these pieces in place. And so, I mean, even to close, I think our kind of from, from signing the LOI to close, I mean, I think it might've been a month. I wow. mean, it was, it was really, really fast. So um, they they were just, the speed was one of their, you know, they they acquired 40 companies, you, you know, and so it was, th- this is, was no slow operation. Like you, like the certainty of close was there. And, and, and I don't think the deal didn't close. So I just knew, like these guys were serious and they had the money in the bank, it was going to happen.
0: You got everybody drooling at this point. This is a, this is like a fantasy, uh, uh, episode of built sort radio. I mean, the, 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 the motivation of the, uh, the other side was fantastic and certainly worked through your favor. Clearly it's amazing. Good for you. Now I want to go back to this emotional sort of roller rollercoaster they went through between March and September. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were, at an EO meeting, and you're around the, the boardroom table with your, your fellow EO members, and one of the members says, look, I'm thinking of selling, but I, I'm just not sure. What sorts of questions might you pose for them or experience might you share to help them think through the emotional sort of impact of, of potentially selling?
1: Yeah. So I think I would get to the emotion behind the uncertainty and try to understand like what kind of what's at the epicenter of that. So is it, you know, I think at the end of the day that like, that's such a vague emotion of like, I'm unsure, you know, I don't want to get down to, you know, quite frankly, there they have fear about losing control which i think a lot of entrepreneurs have or you know of who you know this idea of they're in the seat of power in their current company and they're giving all that up and their baby's gone and i mean so there's all these other things that i think i'd want to get to and and then really then understand why you know they're wired that way which is which is why i think a lot of us are entrepreneurs and we can do it from a place of freedom or scarcity so i'd want to understand kind of like what's the freedom piece that they can lean into versus like the scarcity mentality that's creating the fear.
0: And what do you mean by freedom versus scarcity? I, I'm unclear.
1: You know, so I think either there's this idea of clenching you know, your hands around your company and saying, this is mine, 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 and I need it, and, you know, and, and then you can kind of add all those glossy ideas of you know, building value and vision but if it's really from a scarcity there's there's always going to be a control piece that's that's going to strangle the company and and prevent it from getting to where it needs to versus this idea of like you know there's this abundance mentality of just saying man there you know there's so much opportunity and there's you know like I like I just I'm willing to kind of live from a place of like you know I don't need to clench my hands I can make a decision that's really giving me a chance to say, you know, what is the value that they're giving me versus what I think could create and, and really just do the, the work to determine if it lines up with where you want to go personally. Um, so I'd want to help people make a decision from that place where, you know, is this a good opportunity to sell or not versus versus the, the fear base. But I, I just see too much of the fear base uh, side of things.
0: Interesting. It sounds like you did a lot of work, I mean, in your own admission with a therapist, with a coach, uh, just with your own self over that six-month period to, to get comfortable with this notion. Um, despite all the work that you did to get comfortable with selling, I'm sure since accepting the check or the wire transfer or whatever it was, there, there have been moments uh, that have surprised you, emotional things that have happened that, that have, maybe you could Talk to us about those. Like, what's been surprising, even for you, having done all that work about the emotional impact of selling? You know,
1: in in my scenario, the surprise was all of my fears were unfounded, and selling, and 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 really then ultimately doing it to a private equity back group. I mean, there's so many stories about that. Um, you know, whether you should sell to private equity and what it's like to work for that. I mean, it was such a phenomenal opportunity and it was such a great learning and the ability to consolidate 10 companies. I mean, I, I was one of the kind of the first five executives and got to be involved in M and do due diligence, like fly and meet companies, you know, I mean, it just so many doors opened that I was like, I, like, I, I was like pinching myself, like, man, I did like, I never knew that this was even possible. Hmm. And so, um, you know, I I always give this story to, to friends, you know, I feel like I was in this little sandbox and I was playing with all these toys and I was so happy with all my little toys and somebody literally just lifted my head and I'm on the beach and there's sand everywhere. I'm like, why am I staying in this little sandbox? I have thought so small. Mm-hmm. And so my whole mindset has just been blown and I just see the world differently. I see business differently as a result of that process.
0: Fascinating. What's, what did you, I mean, you, you've been, the, it didn't occur to me to ask until now, but you've also played the other side of the street where you bought businesses. What do you see as the the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make in the process of, of thinking about selling their business? What did you see on, on the, you know, in, in talking to these folks about potentially acquiring their businesses?
1: Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll even go back. You, you know, you asked the question about the coach. One other thing the coach said to me, which I think was good advice, he said, you know, sometimes the best time to sell your company is not when you want to, but when people are willing to buy it. Um, because, you know, if I held on in two or three years, you know, it might be a situation where no one wants to buy it and, and I'm stuck. And so, you know, even that idea of like, you know, when you sell a company, you know, there, there's times where if, people, if you have multiple people coming to you, um, you you know, take that consideration strongly and, and really go through the process of of thinking through you know what it is you want to do and and then uh you know i think with a, a lot of small companies uh particularly they're just not at a place probably of scale where they're going to get a multiple that's going to move the needle in their life that uh you know they're just not big enough so the, so they may not be willing to sell because they overvalue themselves so uh, you know i think that's the hard part is is just getting getting people to reality
0: how how did the sale of of your company affect you personally i mean is this life-changing event for you? Or how, how did it sort of play out for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it could have been a retirement event. Um, you know, I live in Coronado, which is probably one of the more expensive places in the world. So, and and we made decisions to, you know, double down and buy a bigger you know, home and do, you know, make some decisions. So it, it, it uh, it's something that definitely, you know, I have the freedom to pick and choose and, you know, I don't have to work, you know, so it has kind of changed my motivational structure and really given me an opportunity where I was able to sit down and say, you know, what, what would I want to do even if I didn't get paid? And so I was able to take some time and, and really, you know, I took about six months off um, because when I, when I sold, I had a kind of a second exit, if you will, because I, I was part of the executive team and, and we, we just sold um, in, a, in this, you know, about for one and a half billion dollars. And I was part of that. So, you know, that was a, been a great experience. And, and so, you know, it's given me some of the, the opportunity to kind of say, you know, what would I do if I could do anything?
0: Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you sharing the story with us. What's the best way for, I know people are going to want to re- reach out to you and, and say hi on social media or, 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 or just uh, reach out. What is the best way for people to do that, Drew?
1: Yeah, so I'm um I'm at a, we started a, a company called Crown Growth and so we're you know it's drew at crowngrowth.com and and really you know part of that is is wanting to help other entrepreneurs through this journey. I think you know you talked about you know we talked about EO being part of that. You know, there's so many entrepreneurs that I think aren't aware of this other side of the world of private equity and and understanding how leverage and a lot of these things can allow them to really take some chips off the table you know, accelerate their vision and still build wealth. And, and, and so, uh, you know, we've begun a process of, of really wanting to help other entrepreneurs experience some of the things that we had, uh, gone through in that process.
0: Fantastic. Well, I'm sure you're going to get, uh, some, uh, some outreach from folks, uh, wanting to know more. So Drew, I really appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thank you so much, John.